Well, guys, welcome to the Monday Minute today on the Huntback Country Podcast. This is Mark, and Steve is traveling. I am running solo today. So typically, Steve and I will pre-record something if we can, or there has been a couple times where Steve's been out uh, and I've had a special guest. But looking back at the list of Monday Minute questions that we have from you guys, there were several things that uh, I could speak to from personal experience that, honestly, Steve didn't have experience with. And so I thought it'd be uh, a perfect opportunity for me to address those questions. So today, it's just me answering some listener questions from you guys. First of all, thank you, as always, for submitting the questions. If there's anything you want to send to us to address on a future episode, uh, whether that's a Monday Minute question or something like a guest suggestion, you can always send that via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Um, all right, so first things first, we have a few different uh, questions related to rifles and rifle shooting. Uh, So to dive into the first one, this guy's writing about chronographs and he says, I am considering a new chronograph primarily for my rifle, but being able to use it with my bow would also be a bonus. Do you have any experience with the lab radar? And if so, do you feel it is worth it? Also, does it work with arrows? So short answer, yes, I own a lab radar chronograph. Um, full like story i purchased it at full price uh and it was hard for me to do that they are not cheap they are expensive um but they are a good unit you know when it comes to chronographs i've owned in the past uh what i'll call an optical chronograph so uh probably what you guys may be familiar with and you can get those for 130 bucks or something like that you can shoot those with rifles, with bows, with pistols, um, but they're just not ideal in a lot of circumstances. Uh, with the optical sensors, they are somewhat sensitive to overhead conditions, and then sometimes you have to set them up different ways than others, and you have a smaller window to shoot through, so from certain shooting positions, they're not ideal. Um, so yeah, an optical kind of standard old school chronograph works. It's a good budget option that would work with rifles and bows. Uh, but it wasn't what I was looking for. You know, if you step up on the rifle side, um, you have something like the magneto speed, uh, a very good friend of mine has one of those and I've used it quite a bit. Um, and they are great for rifles, but they're not gonna work with bows. And for me, the biggest downside to uh, the magneto speed with a rifle is just the point of impact shift. So if you're unfamiliar with the magneto speed, it's something that you are strapping onto your barrel. Uh, And anytime you are adding something to your barrel, you're changing harmonics and you're most likely gonna see a point of impact shift. So if you're doing some low development uh, or work with your rifle where you want to gather speed data, look at things like not only your velocity, but extreme spread and standard deviation, and you also want to see the downrange results, meaning you're shooting for groups or point of impact, the magneto is not gonna be a good choice because it will get you the speed data, but is going to affect where your impacts are landing. There's also other issues, like for example, if you shoot suppressed as I do, um, then running the magneto speed becomes more difficult to have the proper clearance and set up for a suppressor. You can overcome the downsides to the magneto speed uh, with an external mount. So 
the guys from Wiser Precision, for example, uh, you may have heard us talk about their uh, quick sticks, which are trekking pole adapters that turn them into shooting sticks. And Steve and I use those and love those. But Wiser Precision makes a magneto speed mount where you're not now dependent upon mounting the magneto speed to your barrel. So this eliminates the downside of the change in harmonics and the change in impact, and it can also allow you to run a suppressor as well. So there's ways to get around the downsides of Magneto, but by the time you buy the Magneto, buy an external mount, like you're already making a decent investment, and that led me to the Lab Radar. So the Lab Radar does work great with rifles as well as handguns and also archery. I have used it for all the above. It actually has built-in um, modes, essentially, for each of those uh, weapons. So in the in the lab radar, you can tell it I'm shooting a rifle, or I'm shooting a handgun, or I'm shooting a bow, and it essentially will change internally the settings uh, accordingly. The lab radar is not attached to your weapon in any way. It's uh, freestanding, so you're going to mount it to a tripod or something of the sort. And that means if whether you're shooting from a bench, shooting prone, shooting standing, no matter what you're doing, um, it's easy to get the lab radar in a position uh, where it is effective. The lab radar also is going to give you some more advanced data. So it can obviously give you your velocity, extreme spread, standard deviation, and do those calculations for you. Um, it can also show you downrange velocity. So you can choose intervals of velocity essentially at muzzle versus 50 yards downrange and 100 yards downrange, things like that, which can be nice for sure. Um, and then getting that data is very easy because the lab radar has an app for your phone. So a magneto speed, for example, uses an SD card and you can pull the SD card out and then dump data in a spreadsheet on your computer, things like that. I've found with lab radar and syncing the data to my phone and the lab radar app that that gets me all the data in a very handy way and then also gives me history. So I can go back at any point in time and look at a specific shot series or shot sequence and see data um, from that. So it's very nice there. And because it's not optical, um, it's using radar, it is not sensitive to uh, conditions in terms of cloud cover, full sun, and dealing with kind of the downsides of an optical chronograph. So is the lab radar worth it? It is a great device. It is an expensive device. Um, I see some reports out there about like reliability and missed shots. I, I haven't experienced that myself other than I would say user error or setup error. Um, and so there are some differences in position with the lab radar. If you are shooting a rifle uh, with no muzzle brake, or a rifle with a muzzle brake, or a rifle with a suppressor, for example. You might need to position the lab radar a bit differently for those different conditions, but I have found it once once you essentially get some experience with it um, and know where to set it up for your rifle configuration, it's very easy to use uh, and has been very reliable for me. So. Um, if you can make the price work, it's a great unit. Uh, it works great with my bow, handguns, um, even 22s. There's an external lab radar trigger if you want. Uh, you can dive off into the deep end. But anyway, very good unit. Costly, but good unit. 
All right, so moving on, a, another question, rifle-related, and this is about um, load development with hammer bullets. So uh, again, if you have history with the podcast, you may have heard us talk about hammer bullets uh, with Steve from Hammer Bullets, as well as with my buddy Tyler Bashma, uh, us sharing our experiences about the terminal performance of hammer bullets. I haven't really covered in detail uh, the load development process with hammer bullets other than just like hinting at it and saying it's very quick and easy. Um, I am, uh, or I should say, I will be publishing an article about this, uh, but it's not yet to come. But the quick and dirty on load development with hammer bullets is it's very easy. So, um, there's several considerations I'll run through quick. Number one, hammer bullets are different than call it conventional bullets. So uh, they typically prefer faster powders. Um, they typically run at lower pressures, meaning you can run a higher powder charge uh, without seeing pressure signs. And for me and my experience, which is typical if you look online, I run my hammer bullets at charge weights with powder that exceed what is published in books with traditional bullets. So if you were to take even another monolithic bullet, such as a Barnes, for example, um, you can look at Barnes load data for an equivalent weight and cartridge and look at their load data and often your hammer load can exceed that. Uh, and that's been my case. Um, with my 30-06, for example, I exceed the Barnes Max published load by about a grain. Uh, with my 6.5 Creedmoor, I'm exceeding it even further, uh, more than a grain. I think it's somewhere between two and three grains above the book Max from Barnes, for example. So starting load development with hammer bullets. Number one, I would reach out to hammer bullets directly and get their recommendation. They not only do a lot of testing themselves, but they deal with a lot of customers and have a lot of data on here's a hammer bullet, here's a cartridge, here's a recommended powder, and a recommended starting point for charge weight with that powder. So that's where I'd start is contact hammer bullets. They're very responsive and very helpful. Number two, there is quite a bit of data out there online. Uh, different forums and things like that are going to have folks sharing their experiences loading hammer bullets. Uh, one of the best places is probably the long range hunting forum. There are a ton of guys on there who have loaded a lot of hammer bullets and different cartridges and share their load data. So when it comes to choosing a powder and then a starting charge weight, consult hammer and then look to verify online as well. When it comes to seating depth um, or cartridge overall length with hammer bullets, they are known to be insensitive to seating depth um, versus something that can be very sensitive, such as like a Burger VLD. So it's generally recommended that you don't need to play with seating depth on hammer bullets. And I have gone down the rabbit trail and done seating depth testing with hammer bullets just because I could and just because I was curious. And I found that it was a giant colossal waste of time and money to do so. So I would not suggest playing with seating depth. What I would do um, is if you were using a magazine fed rifle, I would essentially load out to mag length um, if possible and just start there. 
if you want to kind of measure against your rifle's chamber, um, I would start at 20 thousandths off of the lands. So again, if mag length is an issue, deal with that. If mag length is not an issue and you're using like a bottom metal uh, where you don't have mag length restrictions, I would start at 20 thousandths off of the lands. Or if neither of those work and you just want to start with like a SAMI spec length for your cartridge, you certainly could do that. But again, my experience is they are not very sensitive to seating depth, and I generally start at 20 thousandths off of the lands if possible. Um, in terms of finding the distance off of the lands, different conversation for a different day, but there's some great resources out there if you look online uh, and different ways to do it. So again, powder choice, powder charge, consult hammer, verify in line, two overall length, go with mag length or 20 thousandths off the lands. And then now you're shooting. So you know what length you're loading to and seeding your bullet to, and you have a powder choice and somewhat of a charge weight. I would be loading a ladder of charge weights then. Uh, depends what you want to do. I've done everything from like half a grain increments. So maybe I'm starting at 54 grains and going to 54.5 and then 55 and then 55.5 and onwards. Or if I have a more narrow window I want to target, sometimes I'll jump by like 0.3 grains of powder. Um, so essentially roughly 10 to 12 to maybe 15 would be a huge ladder to test uh, rounds where you're shooting and essentially just looking for signs of pressure. So again, Looking for signs of pressure is its own conversation, and I will show this more clearly in the article when I get it out there, but when I'm looking for signs of pressure, I'm looking at primers, cratering, things like that. I'm looking at the brass and ejector marks or any indications of pressure on the brass itself, and then also paying attention to bolt lift, so heavy or sticky bolt um, after firing. And essentially, hammer load development, you're you're trying to find pressure. You're loading up the ladder, you're increasing in a safe manner and looking for signs of pressure. Uh, and that can be different things for different rifles, but essentially you wanna find pressure and then back down and you're honestly probably done. So I, from personal experience, I've done hammer load development on a few rifles of my own as well as uh, with some friends on their rifles. And if you have a ladder of say, 10 to 12 rounds and you find pressure near the upper end of that and you back down a half grain to a full grain of powder uh, and this depends on what cartridge and what powder you're using but somewhere in there back off of pressure by say a grain to be conservative and then i would just load four groups there so shoot a three shot group or a five shot group and you will probably be done with low development so all in all you can go from zero to hunting load with hammer bullets often in like 15 rounds that's totally doable i've done it multiple times so again very quick very easy uh the results have been nothing but impressive for me um yeah that's it so hammer bullets is kind of a totally different deal than a lot of what you see with other bullets but that has been my experience on those and again i will have more to come on that in the future and not only show you my process, but kind of share at least my uh, published data for the cartridges that I have developed loads for with hammer bullets. 
All right, one more shooting question. This guy wrote in and said, have you guys found that suppressor covers are necessary or are they just a tactical item for guys that want to look like snipers? Uh, this is a great question. I did not know the answer to myself up until I started shooting with a suppressor over a year ago. I honestly had the impression that they were tactic cool and it was all about the looks, but suppressor covers are functional. So as you shoot through a suppressor, it is trapping gases um, and delaying the release of gases. And that's where the sound reduction comes from in part. And if you were firing multiple rounds, the suppressor, because it's trapped gases, is retaining heat and building up in heat, just like your barrel does, but to a more extreme manner. The suppressor is getting hotter and hotter and hotter as you fire more and more and more rounds. That heat is uh, dispersed and creates heat waves, and that can affect your uh, image through your optic. So as you are looking through your scope, you can see mirage and heat waves and like a blurry haziness through the scope that could be heat coming off of the suppressor itself. Suppressor covers can mitigate that. And so the suppressor cover is essentially reducing that mirage effect and keeping a clearer picture through your optic for longer. Um, there are downsides. Keeping the suppressor covered is also going to retain more heat in the suppressor. So it depends on your context, on if a suppressor cover is necessary, as this guy asked about. I do run a suppressor cover when I am shooting at the range, doing load development, practicing, and have the higher probability for longer strings of fire. So, you know, if I'm shooting, not rapid by any means, but like say I'm doing hammer load development and I'm shooting 10 to 12 rounds in a quick-ish period of time, a suppressor cover is gonna help me tremendously so that I'm not building up heat and creating mirage through my scope as I do so. Again, a downside would be a trap heat. So if I'm taking a break between shooting, I actually remove the suppressor cover, it just slides right off, um, and that allows the suppressor to cool more quickly. So um, I do not use a suppressor cover when I'm hunting. I don't have it on my rifle when I'm hunting. Some guys may because it protects the suppressor and you won't get it scratched up or whatever, but I, I don't care. I don't care about the looks or that aspect of it. To me, it's a functional piece of equipment to help mitigate mirage when that's needed. Um, there's a m bunch of different suppressor covers out there from inexpensive to very expensive. Some uh, have more heat properties than others. Um, that one thing I should mention as well, it can make it easier to handle the suppressor. So a suppressor will get so hot that you do not want to touch it. You will burn your hand. And so a suppressor cover can make it easier to handle the suppressor. I also carry, especially to the range, essentially like a, a hot glove, like a, not an oven mitt, but it's like a it's like for a grill, right? It's a hot glove. And that makes it easier to take the suppressor off if needed when it's hot. The suppressor cover I use is from a small company in Texas called Rouch Precision and I can leave a link to that in the show description, but great guys down there. They make custom covers for your specific suppressor and you can choose colors and all kinds of cool stuff like that. I had them actually embroider an XO logo on it and they did a fantastic job. So suppressor covers, in my opinion, are worth it. Uh, you don't have to spend a hundred plus bucks though to do it. Um, you don't have to hunt with one and Rouch Precision 
I would totally recommend them as uh, one to consider for sure. Um, another side note, I do have an article coming out uh, titled something to the effect of, I can't remember if it's like six or seven things I've learned since hunting with suppressor. And so it's going to cover things like suppressor covers and if they're worth it and much more all about essentially what I have learned now shooting with and hunting with a suppressor and kind of address some of the questions I had before owning the suppressor, some of the misconceptions that I'm correcting for myself. And so there will be more content to come if you guys want to geek out on suppressors. Also, uh, go back to the episode we did all about suppressors with the guys from Thunder Beast Arms. And again, I can leave a link to that episode in the show description as well. I don't know the, the, uh, the number offhand. All right, changing over from shooting, uh, we had some fitness and training questions. This guy wrote in and said, CrossFit for hunting, why or why not? And he goes on to say, this past October, I killed my first deer and had to pack it out two miles through some hellacious deadfall to get back to the trailhead. I was pleased at how comfortable your pack made the weight feel on my back but my legs were absolutely destroyed by the time I got back. Other than outdoor-related activities, I had not consistently exercised for years, and I paid for it on that packout. In an effort to make things easier on myself this coming year, I joined a CrossFit gym in December and have been going consistently four to five times a week ever since. I have seen some pretty dramatic changes to my body and to my overall athletic ability in that time. You, and he's referencing me, mentioned in the past with uh, Kyle Camp that you have tried CrossFit. How did you feel it prepared you for hunting-related activities? Why did you stop? Now that it is starting to warm up here and get closer to season, my plan is to do CrossFit four times per week and get one weighted hike in on the weekends. Is that a good training strategy for my upcoming hunting season? All right, so uh, CrossFit I have not done um, officially. So I've never attended a CrossFit gym or been a member of a CrossFit gym. I have done a ton of CrossFit style training on my own. I have filed some CrossFit programming um, on my own. I essentially have a garage gym with squat rack, barbell, kettlebells, dumbbells, sandbags, pretty much almost everything I need for like my personal CrossFit gym, if you will, for myself. So um, CrossFit is great. I don't think it's super magic. Uh, It is a great choice for general physical fitness. Uh, This guy mentioned he's seen some dramatic changes to his body and athletic ability. And I would say that that's fantastic. And I would expect that to be the case for CrossFit. So the question really boils down to, is it great preparation for hunting? I think it builds a good base for hunting. I think it's a great uh, activity and training method in general um, for off-season training. I don't think it is specific enough to hunting where you can only do CrossFit and be in ideal hunting shape. That's not to say that you only do CrossFit and couldn't go on a hunt like you certainly can obviously um, but crossfit by nature is going to leave you with some gaps in specificity that you could improve upon further if you're more intentional with your training like crossfit if you look at the programming 
is varied by nature. It is not specific by nature. You get a wide exposure to training uh, methods, movements, modalities, and that's very good for overall ability. Um, but if we're talking about training for hunting specifically, you do want to add some specificity to your training. So this guy mentioned doing CrossFit four times per week and then doing one weighted hike on the weekends. I would at a minimum change that to saying do CrossFit three times per week and do two more hunt specific training sessions. One of those could be a hike. Both of those could be a weighted hike, or you could have like one weighted hike per week and one more focused, uh, like muscular endurance or body where you're doing like jump lunges and other movements. Um, so I would continue to do CrossFit. If that's what you want to do, I would do it two to three times a week leading up to hunting season and do two to three uh, two to three sessions of more hunt specific training um, and break it up that way. So I think four sessions of CrossFit and one hike is too CrossFit heavy. I would at a minimum change that to three CrossFit sessions and two hunt specific sessions a week. Um, I'm actually doing something quite similar uh, now, just recently. Uh, there is an, I don't want to call it an organization, but there's something called F3, which is like a outdoor boot camp style workout um, that I've started attending a little bit. And it's been a blast and it has kind of got me doing all kinds of different things. Um, and my plan is to do that two or three times a week uh, leading up to hunting season and then have two or three times of hunt specific training. I've done many similar things in the past. So from personal experience, that's what I would recommend. Again, if you're looking for hunt specific training, and especially if you don't want to go to a CrossFit gym or a big box gym, or you don't have a home gym, we do have a free training plan, minimal equipment. All you need is essentially your pack and a trip to Home Depot with like 20 bucks and you can have everything you need to complete that training. And that is just at exomountgear.com forward slash train. So T-R-A-I-N and you can go get that plan. Um, another training question from another guy, different topic. He says, I recently found myself enjoying the topics and podcasts where you look into more of the psyche and toughness of a hunter as well as nutrition and training. I am curious, how do you plan your season with different hunts in regards to your training? Do you treat some hunts as a quote-unquote training hunt and then prioritize other hunts as a quote-unquote peaking hunt where you are in the best shape as possible for that one specific hunt? Having done triathlons in a past life, I would map out several races, race A, B, and C throughout the year, and treat those races differently. Not every race would have the same intensity or preparations. I'm curious if you could apply the same thing in the hunting world. So yeah, for guys who may not be familiar with like triathlons, ultra running, something like that, um, a lot of those athletes are doing multiple events per year, but they're focusing on a one to two to a few specific events where they're essentially trying to peak. They're trying to be in the best shape as possible um, for a specific race or two or three. And they're doing other races outside of that, but those races are essentially more training races towards their, call it, primary event that they're focusing on. And so this guy's asking, do you do the same thing with hunts? So if you have three or four hunts in a year, 
Um, are you training more intensely and specifically for maybe one or two of those versus the others? Um, it's an interesting question. My answer is it depends on the demands of the hunt. I treat hunts differently with, um, with training. So I, I always feel like it's better to stay in shape than get in shape. So I, I generally don't like fall off the bandwagon and then try and quote unquote get in shape. So I'm maintaining a base level of fitness and capability to do kind of anything at any time. But given the demands of specific hunts, I will ramp up training or add intensity to training or as I discussed specificity to training based on that hunt. And it's not because I value that hunt more than another hunt. It's simply because the demand of the hunt is greater. And so a very like super easy example would be a backcountry elk hunt is going to be most likely more physically demanding than even a deer hunt. Why? Well, simply because packing out an elk is different than packing out of a deer to begin with. Um, and obviously there can be exceptions to this. You could have a very tough, very deep backcountry deer hunt and an elk hunt where you aren't packing as far or you have a bigger group so you're not packing as much weight or what have you but again that's that's your decision to make that's your call to make understanding the demands of the hunt should dictate your training um, something like you know for example this fall i will have an archery elk hunt in september uh, a rifle elk hunt in october a kodiak deer hunt in november and maybe some other things mixed in I am going to treat those elk hunts with more of a priority simply because I am going to more likely be in a situation where I'd shoot an elk four or five, six miles from the truck and now have to pack out an elk versus in Kodiak. It's still a demanding hunt. Uh, it's a tough hunt, but the pack out isn't as long in distance. It's still often heavy because I'm typically uh, killing a deer and packing it out in one trip by myself with my gear. So there's still potential. Um, and it happened on our last Kodiak hunt with a hundred plus pound pack out, but it may be two miles downhill and not, you know, six miles with an elk up and down and over and yada, yada, yada. So, uh, interesting question. I do again, treat hunts differently, but it's not because I value one more. It's just good understanding the demands of that hunt. I do think you need to be realistic with yourself on where you're at and understanding how you should train for each hunt. And also, if you do have the luxury of having multiple hunts a year, um, understanding how to uh, maintain fitness through a season. So if you have hunts in, say, September, October, and November, um, you can be in great shape going to September and completely kill yourself in September and then not have very good capabilities in October, November. And so number one, keeping up training can be important, but number two, just as important are things like recovery between hunts, uh, nutrition, sleep, all that stuff. Like, so if you want to have longevity across the fall with multiple hunts, you need to pay attention to those things. All right. So, uh, a final question, this guy wrote in and said, I am a fan of the podcast and listen to it often. I also picked up my first XO pack this past year. I have heard Mark mention that he started elk hunting after college and that he documented that process through a website or blog. I would be interested in more of that backstory, but I can't find a website. Is there anywhere I can still read about it? 
Great question. Um, so yes, I started hunting elk uh, shortly after college. Uh, backstory, I'm from the Midwest, didn't know anyone that hunted elk, period. Uh, this was before the time of podcasts and the University of Elk Hunting and a million other things before Go Hunt, before Onyx Maps. Like there just weren't the resources out there that there are now. And uh, it was much more difficult to find information, at least in centralized places. And so for my own like benefit, I basically started writing things down as I was doing my research and learning leading up to my first elk hunt uh, in a kind of like a happy accident. I was writing these things and publishing them online with zero intention of anyone reading it, but it essentially being my own resource and somehow people started reading it and following it and it kind of turned into something. That site was called uh, Soul Adventure and I wrote leading up to my first elk hunt and then for a handful of years thereafter, documenting not only that first hunt, but subsequent hunts, things learned, uh, geeked out a ton on archery and bow hunting. I just had a ton of articles and content out there um, and it had a good following. What happened was um, my domain expired and the notices that my domain was expiring went to my spam email. So I didn't get notices that my website domain was expiring until too late. And then it expired. And then I started getting some emails from people like, hey, your site's down, blah, 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 blah. And this was, I believe, summer of 2019. Uh, it was in the midst of us launching our K3 pack systems. And honestly, I had zero time for anything other than surviving work. And so I knew the domain expired, didn't have time to get it back up. And I was like, yeah, I'll get around to it. I still haven't. So. <laughs> The site no longer exists, and I'm partially bummed about that and partially okay with it. Like, it was a different kind of like season and phase of my life um, that I appreciate and valued. I learned a ton from. I think it helped some folks, and I wish for, you know, for people who have an interest that it was still there. Personally, I don't really care that it's gone. But long story short, that's the background and context to my website, my blog, uh, soul adventure what that was and all that so it doesn't exist anymore um i want to continue writing more i've done a little bit of it on the exo blog and as time allows we'll do more of it in the future um but yeah that's the backstory there so yeah that's a good wrap for today guys um hopefully you took something out of that one we will be back uh, with more Monday Minute episodes in the future and obviously our normal schedule of releasing full-length episodes on Wednesdays. I got to say, we have some killer content planned for the summer. A lot of interviews we've already recorded, a new roundtable series that's coming, um, a new gear episode that's coming, uh, very practical strategy stuff like leading up to elk season and deer and all that. Like, really excited about where things are going. So hope you guys are as well. Um, as always, if you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button in the podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. If you enjoy the show, sharing it with a friend would help tremendously. Um, and once again, if you have any questions for us or want to get in contact with us, just shoot that email to podcast at exomountaingear.com and we'll talk to you soon.